Support for WVIK comes from Kathleen Collins at the Dragonfly in Bettendorf. Using both conventional and alternative counseling methods for empowerment to help create change for individuals and couples. More information is at KathleenCollinsCounseling.com. Welcome to Because. I'm Mark Zyla. This is part two of my chat with Ellen Dinwiddie-Smith. Y'all really loved part one. The social media buzz around it has been really, really cool. So thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy part two. So um, what's after, how long were you in Fort Worth? Four years. Four years. Yeah. And uh, what else is going on in life at this hmm. time? So it's crazy. <laughs> this is the craziest like, thing. I know I talked a little bit about it with your husband. Yeah. But like, and the episode I did with my wife, we talked a lot about this, that mm. just like you find partnerships in right. life in which two people are trying to do things. Mm-hmm. And sometimes... It, it it doesn't look like the way that you think it's going to look, or it might be a little harder than you would hope, but yeah. anyway. No, it's insane. <laughs> As a matter of fact, if you're a musician, you know it's insane. Right. Though I've since found out, you know, talking to other people, that a lot of people now, it's more complicated, especially with two working families. But mm-hmm. So basically, we, we both graduated in 1987, and mm-hmm. that's the summer we started dating. We were at NRO, mm-hmm. and um, we'd been roommates, and one of our roommates, Rick Stout, was there, and someone said to him, are they going out? And he said, oh, no, they're just really good friends because we had been really good friends. Mm-hmm. And then one day he said to us, are you guys going out? <laughs> You're like, okay, now, yes. And we're like, um, yeah, we are actually now. <laughs> and he was, yeah, I just, he kind of went, what? That's weird. So we started dating that year, and then I was um, still in Charleston. He was with the opera company. Mm-hmm. And um, so we, you know, we did as much as we could together and then tried to spend some summers together. And then the then I won the Fort Worth job, and then he was, he went over to um, Phoenix to work mm-hmm. with the Phoenix Symphony. Mm-hmm. And at one point, he just said, "Like, I, I really just want to marry you. Are you okay not living together?" And <laughs> we were making it work, so I just thought, "Well, why not?" Right. Well, everyone else thought we were crazy. Mm-hmm. They were like, "Why would you even do that?" You know. Even but, families, or <laughs> yeah, especially families. Right. Exactly. Well, especially my family, because right. you know. The, I, you would think with a military life they would get it, but no, they were yeah. just like, no, you're not in the same place. Right. Um, so, you know, and I probably hadn't thought super far down the road, like what that's going to look like, but, you know, it was like, okay, let's do it. You we'll know? figure it out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll figure it out. Love conquers all. Right. And, uh, yeah, so we got married in 1990. Um, the summer after that, I went, or I was runner-up for Minnesota, but it was associate principal. Mm-hmm. And then they asked me to sub in the summer on second horn, Okay. which I did. And then um, the following year, they had an audition for Second Horn because the Second Horn retired. Uh, I think I played one more summer as Second, and then the next fall or soon after, they had an audition for Second. But because 
I wasn't, you know, hadn't been in the finals for second horn. They didn't invite me to the finals. I had to go back through the hall rounds right. again, you know. All the things. <laughs> so when it all came down again, they were just like, oh, there you are again, you know, because mm-hmm. they played with the section at the end. And so um, I got called into um, <laughs> to Ada DeVart's office, and he said, you know, you have a lot of power. I don't want you to... Um, don't encourage those boys back there, <laughs> which I thought was really funny. Um, yeah, so I started out as second, which mm-hmm. is unusual. Um, and um, who I was mean, principal then? That was Kendall Betts. Okay. Yeah, and then uh, Charlie McDonald, who had also been third in Cleveland at one time, was third. Mm-hmm. And Dave Kaming was fourth. And um, I played a lot of third horn when Charlie was ill because he had um, emphysema. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I would even play second and third. Like when we, we toured one time, I played second on Beethoven 7 and third on Mahler 5, different wow. concerts. But, mm-hmm. you know, it was a yeah. lot of playing. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so then eventually when he uh, retired, they kind of said, well, we'd love to have you do third if you want. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of a hard decision. I was like, do I – there's so much great second stuff. It was right. – like I was sort of afraid to, you know. Mm-hmm. But finally I just decided to just do it. Right. And because um, I figured I had played second for enough time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of unusual to jump like that. And I was going to tell you, I also jumped a little bit in Fort Worth, too, because um, I played second in the chamber orchestra and then third in the orchestra. And then the orchestra schedule got busier and I started playing associate, too. Okay. And just one year I got a contract and it said, you're now associate. <laughs> and yeah. I was like, I called the principal horn. I'm like, do you know about this? And he goes, do I know about it? I was the one who. Right. I made the call. <laughs> I know. And I was like, because I was afraid, you know. Yeah, like, yeah. I, I was like, you know. Right. He was like, no, no, this is what we wanted. And I was I was shocked. So I feel like I've been super lucky to have really supportive colleagues in that way. Mm-hmm. And not everyone does. And right. our, our, sometimes our industry is very stuck on you've got that position. That's the only position you can do. Right. Or as you talk to people like Freudus, I mean, when she started – in her orchestra, she was then on low horn, and then they just moved her up little by little, and then she ended up in the first horn chair. Right. To me, it's much more organic mm-hmm. to to learn to do things that way. Right. I think maybe in the big picture, it's a better training way yeah. to do it because we don't foster people necessarily the best way if we just say you're fourth horn and that's it. Right. You know, yeah. sort of. It sort of makes you stuck. Yeah, and you know. Well, I've never done it in a full-time context where it's like week after week after week. I can imagine, though, that like in if you're just the fourth horn player mm-hmm. and there's never anything that changes, that mm-hmm. often that can lead to stagnation or, um, you know, often I find people, the, those are the snarky ones in the orchestra mm-hmm. and you're just like, you don't have to be like that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean they're the workhorses, and, the, and right. they get to feel like feeling like it after a while, you right. know, because they are always on stage. The principals rotate. Principals mm-hmm. get a lot of time off. You know, right. Second horn, second bassoon, second mm-hmm. oboe. They're just like they are the workhorses, right. and so it you know it would be good for them to have a little break. So right. I, I think no it doubt. would be better if we changed it up. But you know I'm not in charge of the world, so I don't get to make these calls. <laughs> <laughs> I just, just think it would be healthier overall. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. So uh, what was it work like working with the Kendall Betts? Ah, uh, Kendall. <laughs> Kendall was charming. He was brilliant. Um, he could be very snarky. 
had a hilarious sense of humor or very stupid, depending on how you felt that day. (laughs) (laughs) You know, he was all of those things. Mm -hmm. Uh, He he never there weren't there weren't many days where I wasn't surprised because he he was interesting in that way. Mm -hmm. And I would say that, um, man, that guy could play the horn. Yeah. Yeah, he really could. (laughs) So it was it was fun working with him. Um, and I think one of the reasons, again, that I worked well with him was because of my, that same experience I was telling you about Mm -hmm. figuring out how to, how to work with him and say things in a way that didn't seem threatening. Yeah. Um, but also I have to credit him with the fact that he was not afraid to hire really talented players. A lot of principals are a little bit afraid about their position Mm -hmm. and he hired Mike Gast Right. He hired me. You know, he was mm-hmm. not afraid to hire people to bring up the section. And um, that's a big thing. Right. You know, so, um, but, you know, he he uh, he picked some battles mm-hmm. and he kind of relived some battles from his younger years and his later years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they kind of say we don't change. And I think in some ways that kind of happened with him. Mm-hmm. Um, but he started a great thing with the, with the Kendall Betts Horn Camp. Yeah, no doubt. And he was very nurturing to many, many Mm-hmm. generations of young people. Yeah. I had the opportunity to go back and teach several t- several years. I haven't been able to in years because we were recording the Mahler cycle, but mm-hmm. I really enjoyed it. I get, enjoyed also getting to know the other horn professors. Right. You know, and so there's... It's kind like, of a who's who of, of horn horn players on yeah, that faculty. Yeah. And it's like, it's unusual for a professional to get to spend time with other either teachers or professionals and really spend some time right. and know them. Right. It's um, usually just if you're playing a gig together yeah, or something. Yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, and in, in Minnesota, it's not like we play with people out in L.A. or, you know, right. in, in on the East Coast very often. Right. Um, I did quite a bit during the lockout, but for the most part, we don't. Mm-hmm. do that you know we're just too busy right doing our thing mm-hmm. which is both irritating and wonderful at the same time <laughs> <laughs> absolutely <laughs> so i want to talk about or i would love for you to talk about um you are a very strong female in a world in which it's very male dominated what has that experience been like for you and um kind of what do you hope for, I think, in the future as it relates to, um, you know, equity within the orchestra world? Uh, I, I think it's something that a lot of people talk about. And, uh, you know, yeah. I think it's important that we talk about it. Yeah, it is really important. And it's it's so interesting because when I was, when, you know, when I was at the University of Texas, Wayne Barrington said to me, you're just going to have to knock the socks off of people. You're going to have to play twice as well as the guys if you want a job. And I just thought, Phew. This is 1980s. What is he talking about? Right. You know, and, you know, 10 years later, when I got a job in an orchestra, the first thing one of the males said to me was, oh, there's lots of women in major orchestras. There's Julie Landsman. Um, there's Susan Slaughter. Um, there's. <laughs> and I said, um, isn't that interesting that you can name them? Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he sort of said, oh, I see. I see what you're saying now. Mm-hmm. So. There were those things, there, you know, just that realization, even to the male colleagues who, in my opinion, they hired me. So they're obviously not threatened or and they're open right. to it. So I'm Because it would have been very easy for them to not hire Exactly. Again. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm, I'm definitely not criticizing. What I'm just saying is like even for them who were so open, they were sort of like, oh, you're right. That, right. Is, that is unusual. It's like a, <laughs> yeah, it's like a low level unconscious kind of 
Yeah. Thing. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, even when I was in Philadelphia, there had been a woman, uh, Martha Glaze, who'd been in the orchestra and something happened to her playing after she had her child or I don't know if she just didn't want to practice. Or I have no idea. But anyway, mm-hmm. a lot of people held that up as an example of why women can't have jobs. Right. And that was kind of out there in front of me. Like, you have a baby. You're not going to be able to play. Mm-hmm. That was the only example I had of a woman well, brass player. Because Julian Lansman doesn't have kids. Right. Since Lauder didn't have kids. Right. You know what I mean? So there yeah, was yeah. no there was no person for me to look to. Freudist didn't have kids. Right. You know, I those are my role models. Right. Okay. And so. was that something that you wanted in your personal life? Yes. Yeah. And I knew that. I really knew that um, because my sisters, who are six and seven years older than me, are very wonderful mothers. Mm-hmm. And I enjoyed spending time with their kids so much. When my first nephew was born, it was just like, amazing he's now a firefighter mm-hmm. you know um it's you know it's just amazing all of those kids were amazing and mm-hmm. i took extra time with them when they were teenagers they got to come and be spoiled by me for a week mm-hmm. both of my sister's kids and um yeah so i i knew that i wanted to be a mom because just watching them i was like yeah I'm, I'm gonna do that and i don't think everyone thinks that right some people are like i'm not sure mm-hmm. i was like definitely sure right and um, so that for me was like a, I'm going to do that, mm-hmm. which, you know, you don't always realize, realize what that's going to entail till you do it. But, you mm-hmm. know, that was it. That was something I wanted to do. And I didn't have anyone to ask, like, what does it feel like? Right. Um, what should I expect? How can you recover from, you know, childbirth and getting back into playing? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But that wasn't the only type of issue that I think women have to deal with because yeah, yeah. even when I first got in the orchestra, there were there was a member of the orchestra who basically did sexually harass me. Wow. Um, but I at, and at that time I I don't know that I would have said those words because I would have just said, well, he's harassing me. Mm-hmm. But you know, now looking back at the way people talk about how people are spoken to, I realize okay, that was that was a. But I knew that I did not want to be the person who people said they got this person fired because they complained. Right. I didn't, I did not, I want, did not want to have a label on my back. Mm-hmm. It was more about, again, I should not have been worried about this, about what other people would think of me if I right. did that to this person. What mm-hmm. this person did to me, evidently I just had to let it happen. Right. And when I would tell Mark about it, he would get really mad. Yeah. Um, but I basically said, just wait, I'm going to get tenure. And when that happens, I'm going to, I'm going to say something. Mm -hmm. And I got tenure and that person said something to me and I turned to them with a smile and I said, (laughs) you can't talk to me that way anymore because I have tenure now. Mm -hmm. And he stopped. Wow. Well, that's great. But that was how I had to deal with it for two years. I just kind of had to be like, okay, suck it up. It's unfortunate. I know. You had to do the suck it up part. Yeah. And you know, maybe I could have said something earlier. Mm-hmm. But you know how terrifying it is. Right. And, you know, I, I think something that um, is for people who aren't in the business to understand is that it is so, like like you were saying, you know, I was in the finals for this job and then I won the next one. But, like, I don't know. Like, I always feel like if I were to get to that point, <laughs> like, it would be hard because you're like, if if I lose this opportunity, is there a next one? Right. And there's always that just kind of nerve wracking. I mean, when you're on the audition trail, even if you have a job, right. you're like still kind of worried about how all this stuff is going to work out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, Definitely. Um, 
it's not like you can just go apply for 30 other orchestra jobs. It's like you open up the paper yeah. every month and there might be four auditions, five yeah. auditions. So, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm really yeah. Yeah. sorry that that was your experience. Yeah, and I mean, the you experience know, of so many, unfortunately. I, to be honest, I feel really, really lucky because none of my teachers... Right. And this, I know that's not the case for all young women. Mm-hmm. Um, none of my teachers were abusive and none of the, no one ever did anything to make me feel unsafe. It was just words. Right. Um, but, you know, women of our, my generation, I hope never have to put up with even words. Right. And that, that's my. And words can be discouraging, which is harmful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they, they do, it wears on you. Right. You know. No doubt. Well. Let's tell some fun stories about the Minnesota Orchestra. What are some, I mean, you you have many years left, uh-huh. but like, what are some really exciting memories or, or things that you're most proud of in your work at the Minnesota Orchestra? Some, well, so thinking back to some really fun stories, like we were playing at Carnegie Hall and Kathleen Battle was singing with us. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how this happened. I really don't. But a stagehand leaned on the lights. Oh, man. <laughs> In the middle of the performance, he leaned on the lights, and the lights went out for 30 seconds. Oh, boy. And the orchestra kept going. And I think we were resting during that time, but right. I'm still, I still, to this day, that's one of my biggest memories. You know, you're sitting there on stage going, oh, my, oh my God, gosh. what is happening? Dude. You know? <laughs> uh, Lauver sent me, Bob Lauver sent me a video a couple months ago that he, uh, it was a, something from like the 90s when they did a gala mm-hmm. and they wanted to do a balloon drop Uh-oh. and they were doing like i think it might have been like chike six or something like mm-hmm. that and so it's like super soft moments <laughs> and then it got so hot and the the balloon started popping <laughs> So you literally just hear like all these like really soft, almost like a horn solo is about to come. Right. And then you're, <laughs> oh my gosh. And of course you might think it's a gunshot in this right. day and age. That'd be kind of scary. Oh gosh. Yeah. But it was it. Andrew Davis was conducting. Oh, he didn't look so very, funny. very pleased. Gosh. <laughs> what are some other ones for you? I remember a summer fest that we played. Mike Gast and I were playing. It was a Tchaikovsky um Piano concerto. Garrick Olson was a soloist. It was mm-hmm. the first movement, and it was in the middle of the first movement, right where the horns have these octave chords. Mm-hmm. And it's really quiet, right before the piano comes back in, and right then the piano stool he was sitting on broke, and it made a very loud bang, and it started leaking fluid, <laughs> and people in the audience started laughing, and we were just like, we had no idea what was going on, so we just like kept playing, you know. Mm-hmm. So the movement was over. And Garrick Olson stood up, and it was like a comedy routine. It was like stand-up comedy. He was wow. so funny. It was. He said, "Like I had no idea. I was so nervous." And of course, they came and changed the bench and blah blah blah. But it was it was so unexpected. Oh my it was, gosh! Yeah, hilarious. That's awesome. And then um, this is a lot of early funny stuff. But another time, it was we did a we did a lot of crazy summer concerts where we play like two Beethoven symphonies at seven o'clock and two at you know. Um, nine o'clock, you know, oh so we gosh. just, we had a lot of like, you know, 16 service, 18 service weeks. And, uh, one time I left, we moved and I left my, my mutes back at the other place and we were mm-hmm. playing something, but mm-hmm. 
it wasn't that far, you know, so like I just got up during the performance, like, like kind of leaned down and just brought my mute over. So mm-hmm. Next day I got out on stage. Every mute in the building was around my chair. That's amazing. <laughs> every, like trombone mutes, tuba mutes, every single mute. It was so funny. It just cracked me up. So my colleagues have a hilarious sense of humor. Yeah. Uh, the... Uh especially in the back rows of orchestras it's uh we never goof off hmm. never, never do we hmm. never ever no. and we're not going to goof off this weekend at all <laughs> never no, we wouldn't do that <laughs> so um talk to me a little bit about the lockout i mean we don't have to get into any bloody details but um we've not really talked about this on this show in terms of what it's like for a musician to have a work stoppage like that and for, you know, to be a part of an organization, you know, the Minnesota Orchestra is a a goal orchestra. I mean, it's one of the best ones in the country. And for you all to be kind of embroiled in this, like, I I don't know what it would be like. So tell us what that's like. Well, I, I would say now that people have been through COVID, they know a little bit like what it's like to not have anywhere to play. Right. They've already, you have a opportunity to play, but now you can't play. Right. The lockout was somewhat like that, except for that um, existentially, it was really more an orchestra killer. Mm-hmm. Because with the hall renovation, they wanted to make the organization into something different. There was no longer a, an orchestra, it was just sort of like a house band. Right. And that to me was the biggest part that was worth fighting for because even though you know orchestra musicians can be very like oh my job this my job that you know what we do is very special Mm -hmm. and um i don't believe which we were told that just anyone can come in there's all these people graduating from music school every year they could just come in and sit in your chair and everything would be the same But that's literally what they were telling people, Right. saying things like our tuba player, like tuba players should get paid way less than they get paid because they don't play as much. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah, just yeah. like they would just make, you know, like per note. Do we get paid per note now? I mean, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I was in an orchestra that wanted to switch us to an hourly rate. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. And they did say that. They talked about how many hours per week we were in the hall. Mm-hmm. without talking about all the other hours per week or the fact that we buy all our own equipment or in right. music and, you know. Right. They just, there's so many things that they just choose to admit. And one of the things that was frustrating for me was somewhat how it was reported. Right. Um, you don't always, you know, know all the sides of the story. But, you know, besides that, there were a lot of good things that came out of it, I think. Mm-hmm. For one thing, um, I always knew that my colleagues were really smart people. Mm-hmm. But when you go through something like that, you realize how smart they are. Right. And it was amazing how fast we got organized. Even before the lockout, someone had asked me to start working on the website. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have any real skills. I, I'm techish, but I didn't have any like super skills. But by the time I was done with mm-hmm. six months, I knew how to build a website, maintain a website. I knew how to you know find those Amazon buckets and you know <laughs> find all the things that I need to find to store things and all kinds of stuff that I had no idea would ever know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I it made me believe that musicians can do many other things. We could run our own organizations, as you know, you're doing right. that. I mean, or you've you've done yeah. that. To and a I advocate for like if you're not working full time playing. 
there is a lot to do mm-hmm. to help your orchestra grow and be vibrant in the community that it is in. Right. So, like, I, I don't know if I could feel the investment and ownership over the Quad City Symphony if I hadn't felt responsible for, like, getting my hands dirty on it. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> well, and it's it also shows something good about empowering the musicians, mm-hmm. which I think we had had a disconnect with before as well. Right. Um, and so, and that's, I think, one of the reasons musicians can get very... Uh, frustrated because they don't feel like they have a voice. Mm -hmm. And so since the lockout, we have worked really hard to have more of a voice Mm -hmm. with, for instance, one time I was chair of the artistic committee. It's much, much more work than it was like pre-lockout because we really do stuff, you know, that really mattered. Mm -hmm. So in the, you know, it was really listened to. We were really doing the program. We weren't just like saying, oh, could you? We were actively making at some point it'd be nice to play this yes yeah it wasn't that kind of thing we were actually making the programs or Mm -hmm. you know and and since then the same thing has gone on so it's a lot of work um to have to be on those committees um uh but it's so worthwhile because you are so much more invested right and just like you said you're you realize your community when you see, like when I, there's some of the people who came out and worked for us during the lockout, just supporting us by being there at concerts and volunteering mm-hmm. or whatever was happening. And you just realize how important that is. Right. Um, and for me, that's one of the things when I do retire that I like to help out doing mm-hmm. rather than, you know, doing monetizing things. I'd rather be volunteering to do things I'm passionate about. Right. Um, to give back in that way because I feel like it's not something I've had time to do as a professional. Like, I feel like, and maybe you feel this way, like there's always more practicing I could do. There's always catch a gump on something I can do. And there's just never enough time in the day. Mm-hmm. And I look forward to a time where I can, instead of feeling like I'm taking all the energy, I can give some of it right. back. For sure. And I just don't think that happens until you get to a, yeah. a point. For me, it's just creative ideas that I can't help myself. Like, hey, let's start a podcast. Yeah, let's do it. And then that takes no time, yeah, right? No, no, it's <laughs> finding guests and doing all the things. <laughs> right. So uh, we're, we're coming to the end of our time here. And um, I feel like we've missed a lot of your personal story here at the end. So catch me up on, on your family. <laughs> So we have two boys, and mm-hmm. of course they, they were Minnesota born and raised, and um, now they've gone off. One of them works in Kansas City, he's mm-hmm. done some radio, and he's doing a lot of announcing, sports announcing, so he likes the sports stuff, mm-hmm. as you can well imagine. And then our second son has just gone back off to China to complete his master's degree through the Johns Hopkins program, and he hopes to work for the State Department. Wow. So we're sort of semi-launched and Mm -hmm. this is kind of the first time that we've really been empty nesters because even when they left for college we had uh, mark's mother living with us Mm -hmm. Uh, at one point she said um you know i can leave because the boys are gone now i said no mark can leave but you have to stay (laughs) (laughs) i was teasing of course but the fact was we we just loved having her with us Mm -hmm. um she was such a big part of our family and i know you talked to mark some about that right um but in in truth our parents all were very supportive of us being Mm -hmm. a musician it takes a lot of energy i'm sure you got that from your family if you don't have support from people you know, and that's why you hear stories like I'm reading a story right now. Um, one of my former colleagues, Janet Horvath, has written a book, um, and it's about her father who was in um, concentration camps. Mm-hmm. So he was a survivor, mm-hmm. and he's a cellist. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, he talked about, like, the generation of parents before made, played, did other things so that they could be musicians. Right. You know? So right. it was, like, considered an honor and a, you know, if if you could do that right. to make the world a better place. Wow. That's sort of like the next level of, you know. So, I, you know, so I think about that and I'm like, you know, may we all deserve that. Mm-hmm as we bring forth our music into our communities. Yeah. Well, if I ever get to be a guest on someone else's podcast and they don't ask me about rafting, I'll be sad about it. So, <laughs> but for you, I know it's diving. Talk yes. to me about diving. I would love to know actually how you got started in it. Okay. And like I know the first time I went rafting, it was like I don't know if I've had a thrill like I mean I do the orchestra thing because it's still thrilling to me. But like the first time I jumped in a rubber boat and went down a rapid, I was like, oh, there's excitement other places. (laughs) And it is fun. You guys did the Grand Canyon, right? I'd love to do more of it. It mm -hmm. is super fun. I think, you know, horn players, we have a high tolerance for what takes, you know, we we kind of fall in love with things. Mm -hmm. You play the horn, you have to have like a big commitment, don't you think? Oh, yeah, no doubt. And so like... And it's the instrument that if you're not a musician, you're like, oh, that's a really hard one. Yeah. And I like to say they're all hard. Yeah. But it is hard. It is hard. It is. Like it keeps you humble. It's one of those instruments. It is the instrument that you can do everything right. And for some reason, it will still say no. Yeah. You'd be like, yeah, no, not today. Later. No, I totally agree. But I think I'm like you, where I fell in love with something. For me, it was the ocean when I was a young girl. Mm-hmm. And then just by accident, Mark's dad and stepmom, they loved to dive and they took our family on a trip. And I just said, well, I'll just try it once. Mm-hmm. I was a little worried about the ear thing to me. Yeah. Like, you know, when you mm-hmm. when you swim down to the bottom of the pool, you know, I have to clear your ear. Mm-hmm. Well, when I figured out that that was really, that's the only thing you have to do after yep. that. It's just like. You're down there. You're flying down Mm -hmm. there, and Mm -hmm. it's super fun. Mm -hmm. Um, I find it to be really relaxing, but also just like invigorating, especially you know when you when you find the unexpected. Right. You know, a lot of people are expecting the unexpected every time. Mm -hmm. I don't expect that because I know it's not going to happen every time. Right. I've had over 850 dives now, so I know like you get in the water, someone says there's going to be this, and sure enough, it's not going to be there. Right. So I just don't even believe it, you know, till mm-hmm. I till I see it because every you don't you don't know. It's like a safari. If it's there, it's there. If it's not, it's not. Right. And I've like rafted. Um, I've only rafted two rivers, and they're two of the best ones in the United States. Mm-hmm. But and I'll raft those two rivers every year. Wow. Like. And each time it's different. Mm -hmm. And each time, like, I mean, there's enough beauty in the New River Gorge in West Virginia that, like, you could do that every day and see something new. So do you like to dive the same areas? Do you? Yeah. Like, what what really gets you going on diving? Well, <laughs> is it new things? Is it my, just my all of home? It? I would say my home diving location is Cozumel. Mm-hmm. And some people love Cozumel because it's drift diving. Okay. Um, I love drift diving because you just hang in the water and it takes you. Mm-hmm. It's like rafting. It's like only, a trip. <laughs> yeah. Only without the raft. Right. right. So, um, but some people it, that makes them scared. Because mm-hmm. drift diving can take you places. You don't want to go. Yeah, you don't feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. So you have to understand that that's part of it. But the other thing I love about Cozumel is that sometimes you'll see 80, 90 feet just of, co- of a coral tower. 
Mm. And you don't see that many places. Right. Um, you'll see coral, lots of places in the world, but coral towers like that, it's one of the few places wow. um, that you really see it. Um, and so there's some amazing, amazing diving out there because of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, since I've had a lot of dives, I've tended to, to try to see things I haven't seen before. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Galapagos is amazing because you just, every dive, you see something different. Wow. You're, you're diving with marine iguanas and sea lions and penguins, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mola mola and giant sharks and mm-hmm. everything, you know. Um, so that's that's pretty cool. Uh, but I would have to say one of my very favorite places is Socorro, which is off of Cabo San Lucas. Mm-hmm. And it's a set of four islands. Calling them islands is like maybe generous. One of them's like a big piece of rock that has guano on it. You know, <laughs> it's nothing but bird poop. Uh, it looks like snow, so it's pretty. Um, I hate snow. <laughs> yeah, but when you get close to it, you're like, oh, Ooh, definitely that's don't. not snow. Yeah, that's not snow. But in the winter, you know, the manta rays, um, which which are very curious about dive, divers, they they can be like 20 feet across. Mm-hmm. Um, the oceanic, uh, the pelagic uh, mantas, they're so beautiful and they're curious about divers and they, they have no fear of you. Mm-hmm. Whereas a lot of people think like a hammerhead shark would be a f- like really scary. Mm-hmm. They're also afraid of you. They really? don't like the bubbles. Mm-hmm. So they want to get away from you. So you're always kind of searching them out. Mm-hmm. And um, many, many sharks just look you by. <laughs> they just, you know, go go right by. There's none that look at you like your food. Right. Um, I have friends who dive in South Africa, and they have video of people diving, and a great white just goes right by them. <laughs> you know, so people just have an idea about right. sharks, and sharks are like a dog. They see a, a squirrel or a rabbit running, and they get that prey instinct going. Mm-hmm. So if they hear something at the top of the water, they're going to go for it. So that's usually where people get into trouble. I see. But for divers, it's it's really just more fun watching mm-hmm. them. And I'm uh, sure that's like. Um... There's probably a very interesting mental experience where you kind of realize that you're like just part of this, mm-hmm. like not special. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're actually the least special. Yeah, thing they're right now. <laughs> they're really not thinking you're a thing. I mean, no. I, I suppose it's different if you do a lot of beta diving, which I don't uh-huh. do. But just watching them in their habitat, it's it's really, really, really wow. cool. Whale sharks are so beautiful. It's like the most beautiful thing you've ever seen, mm-hmm. and they're. In the Galapagos, they're as big as a school bus, and they oh. just truck by. You can never keep up with them. They're just swimming against the current, just like a, you know, and you're just going, whoa. You know? So my my rafting dream is to, um, I'd actually really like to spend some time training to do whitewater kayaking. Ooh. Are there things in your diving world that are like dreams or something? Someday I'd love to do this. You know, I guess when I first started, I thought, wouldn't it be cool to do, you know, they have this diving where you don't have the bubbles. It's called a rebreather. Mm-hmm. But after reading about a lot of rebreather accidents, I'm, I'm a little hesitant to do that. And right. I, and I sort of think mixed gas diving is just not worth my time. Mm-hmm. It's something people do to get deeper, but most of what you want to see isn't necessarily deeper. Right. It's just different. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. And so, for instance, if I went to the Philippines and lived there for three months, like you said, each day would be different. Right. And maybe that's the way to do it rather than try to do more. Like crazier things. Yeah. So rather, yeah. I'd like to stay somewhere a little longer that mm-hmm. I don't get to dive normally. Right. I think for me, it's the attraction of like after several years of 
rafting and rafting with the same guides. Right. You get to know them. They get to know you. They mm -hmm. get to know what you're curious about. And and every time we go down the river, it's like a lesson on how to read the mm -hmm. river. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I just, I it's a thing I can't shake. My wife doesn't have this. She's like, I'll get in a boat and let somebody else drive me down right. every time. But I just to to have the challenge of having to read and figure out that puzzle as you go down is I just can't shake it. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a really cool thing. Yeah. So for me, it's like, I want to spend a summer in Arkansas cause they have a training facility down there where they teach you how to do everything. Mm. And like you do like flip your boat, learn how yeah. to read the water. Anyway, right. that's my dream. That sounds really cool. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, I really appreciate you coming on and talking to me today. And I'm, I know we missed some, some good stories in there, but I had a really great time. Hope you did too. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. Because is produced by Mark Zyla and Jaron Michelle in the studios of WVIK Quad Cities NPR. Thank you for listening to this episode. Because I read Because by Mo Willems, illustrated by Amber Wren, I wanted to learn the becauses of people I admire. Do me a favor and thank someone in your own Because story and join us next time on Because. <laughs>